passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. We are studying our way through the book of Malachi. And if you've seen the sermon graphics on this, you know that our subtitle for this study is called Restoring God's Favor. That's the subtitle of the book. And what we've learned is that uh, God's people have actually fallen out of God's favor. And that's what the book is addressing. You see, what happened was God's people had been in exile in Babylon in judgment for their sin, but God had been incredibly gracious Uh, due to no righteousness on their own part, but God had taken them out of exile in Babylon after they had been there 70 years. He had brought them back to Jerusalem and they could begin to rebuild their nation. But while God was incredibly faithful to them, they weren't faithful to him. The past few weeks, we've looked at ways they had become unfaithful. We looked specifically at the priests. We saw the priests as they offered their offerings. Instead of giving the best of animals, because that's what God deserves, they were given the garbage, the stuff that nobody else wanted. God didn't really feel honored out of that. Their attitudes, instead of being grateful to serve, they were grumbling that they had to serve. And last week, we looked at their teaching. Instead of being men of truth, men who faithfully presented God's word, they were given to partiality and favoritism. They were really pleasing just to see who they could please in the way of people, not please in the way of God. They were not faithful teachers of the word of God. Now, as this, this morning, as we put our finger back in the text and we continue working our way through this book, what we find is the book moves from talking about the sins of the priests to actually talking about the sins of the people. And what were the people doing that had moved them out of favor with God? And what do they need to do? What do they need to change to restore God's favor on their life based on what their sin was? So if you have your outlines, in fact, I'd make sure and encourage all of you, please make sure you follow along and write down the fill in the blanks in your outlines. Take those out. We're going to start in the very beginning with number one. First thing we learn is this. God calls us to faithfulness, to faithfulness. Beginning in verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Then why are we faithless to one another? profaning the covenant of our fathers. He starts with essentially three rhetorical questions. The first one is this. Have we not all one father? Well, that's sort of a self-evident question. Isn't that true? I mean, how many people here have more than one biological father? If your hand goes up, I'm really concerned. Because, like, there is no way you can have more than one biological father father. That's just what happens in the nuclear family. You have one father and you have one mother and it creates your children. And what he's doing is he's taking what is self-evident and true in the nuclear family and he's applying it out to the spiritual family. You know that God's people look back to one father. Remember this when you were in VBS? Father Abraham had many sons. Abraham 
is the father of God's people in the Old Testament. And God promised to create a great nation out of Abraham. And God's people looked back to Abraham as their father. And what Malachi is saying is this. Guys, we're all family. Look around you. We all have the same lineage, the same father. And family acts a certain way towards one another, don't we? We're supposed to be loyal to our family. We go out of the way to sacrifice for our family. We care about our family. It's really important that we stick together because we're family. In fact, when my kids were growing up, I, had, I have two boys. One's 22 and one's about ready to turn 20 this week. And uh, the 20-year-old, when he was a little bit younger, he was a little squirrely, and sometimes people would pick on him. And I'd go to my older son, David, and I'd say, you know, we, we have this little saying, we're family and we stick together. You say this, if you pick on my brother, you pick on me. Because we are one. We're family. And what Malachi is saying is, guys, look around us. We're family. We all have the same father, Abraham, and we stick together. Then he asks this question. Has not one God created us? Now, as soon as we hear that, we instantly think back to Genesis and the garden and Adam and Eve. But I don't really believe that's what's being referenced here. He's actually referencing Mount Sinai, where God created a nation out of Abraham's descendants. And he gave them the old covenant. And he set them apart to be his people. One God created them as a nation. In fact, it says this in Isaiah 43, 21. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So what Malachi says is we, we have one biological father we look back to. One God who created us as a nation set apart for himself, for his praise and honor and glory. That's who we are. But if you think about it, that's not just true in the Old Covenant. For them, it's true in the New Covenant for us, isn't it? We have one person that we look to as the author and perfecter of our faith, don't we? Not Abraham, but Jesus, don't we? We've been knit together by the New Covenant into the church, don't we? In fact, that's why we always talk about one another as it's a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ because we're all part of the same family because of Christ. And we treat family differently. We're loyal to them. Now, Malachi asks his third rhetorical question, which starts to put these pieces together. Then why are we faithless in profaning the covenant of our fathers. We're family together, he says, but we're being unfaithful to one another. In fact, this word faithless, it occurs five times in the text we're looking at this morning. It's the key thought idea, faithlessness. Uh, maybe to faithlessness sounds rather innocuous. I, mean, I can say it in a way that uh, connects with you more. He's saying we're committing infidelity towards one another our own family members. This is like a wife stealing from her own husband. This is like a child directly lying to his own parents. It's infidelity. It's faithlessness. 
This is like robbing your own family members. It is inconceivable. Why, he says, are we acting this way towards one another? He says, we're not only committing infidelity against one another, but we're profaning the covenant of our fathers. Now, this word profane, the way he says it here just sort of runs off the lips and it doesn't connect with us and create traction. Because we use the word profane in a different way. We use the word profane with regard to our language that we speak. We talk about profanity. We don't say dirty words. Remember the Christmas story with Ralphie? Ralphie had to eat life boy soap because he had a dirty word that came out of what should be a clean mouth. He committed profanity. Now, profanity, in a verbal sense, would be like one of you right now bursting out with the F-bomb. Or like me saying the F-bomb. You'd say, that's just wrong. How, how dare you speak those kind of words in God's house, among God's people. It's a dirty word in a clean place. And this is what he says. Guys, we are being committing infidelity against one another. And we're profaning our covenant with God. We're dropping the F-bomb on God. We're not doing it with the words of our mouth, but we're doing it with the very actions of our lives. How are they dropping an F-bomb on God with the actions of their lives? In the text, it tells us they're doing two things. It had to do with who they were dating and what they were doing once they were married. They were profaning God and being unfaithful to Him. So let's dive into the rest of the text and you'll see how this takes place. What are God's words to those who are dating is the first thing. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. And how has he done it? And has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. If you're taking notes, I want you to notice those two key words we just talked about were just spoken again. The words faithless and the words profaned. Circle those in your outline. How had they been faithless to profane God? They were marrying the daughter of a foreign God, which simply means they were dating and marrying unbelievers. That is what they were doing. Satan's strategy, and one of his most effective strategies to neutralize the impact of your life for God is to get you dating and ultimately marrying somebody who is not part of his kingdom and part of his people. This text says it very clearly. Not only is it a matter of infidelity, not only is it a matter of profanity, but it's called an abomination. If you're taking notes, circle that word abomination. Abomination was actually a word reserved for things like witchcraft, like idolatry. It is a very, very strong term. Understand this. The first sub-point is this. It was never God's plan to date and marry outside of God's people in the Old Testament. Never. And I can give you scores of examples, but I'll just give you a few. First of all, let's talk about King Solomon. King Solomon, 
wisest man to ever live and walk the face of the earth. Also had God appear to him twice. Yet, how did he end up? Not well. Because of his many foreign wives, it says, turned his heart away from God. So what is the legacy he leaves behind for all of his riches, fame, and wisdom? His son, Rehoboam, actually ends up splitting the kingdom. You have Israel split in half to Israel in the northern part and Judah on the second half. It goes into a civil war that lasts for generations to follow. It all started from Solomon and who he chose to date, who he chose to marry, being outside of the kingdom of God. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 2. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonianite, Sidonian rather, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods." And Solomon clung to these in love. It continues. uh, Go to the book of Joshua. What does Joshua say? For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Let me break this apart a little bit. What he says very clearly is that you date and marry the unbelievers in the land around you. It is a recipe for God taking his hands of favor right off your life. God will no longer drive out the nations around you. Isn't that the same thing that Malachi is saying? This is one of the reasons God has taken his hand of favor off your life. The other thing he describes it as it's a snare. He describes it as a trap. And some of you guys are hunters. I know my boys were into trapping for a while. <laughs> they have these traps, you know, and Jerry, you have them too, you know, snapping. They get that animal. Once that animal's in there, it's not coming out at all. This is what it describes marriage to a foreign woman or marriage to a foreign man, an unbeliever like. It looks good. You think it's going to be great. You put yourself into it, you're trapped. Described as a whip on your side. Has anybody ever whipped themselves before? Now, don't take that the wrong way. I was at the YMCA, and I was uh, actually, this is actually at home, but it was a thing they have at the YMCA. Do you know those rubber bands you guys use for resistance training with the handles on them? There's an re- exercise you're supposed to do where you do a tricep thing where you go up like this and you keep it under your back heel. And I had a really strong one, and I had it under my back heel, and I was doing this, and I lifted my back foot up. And that rubber band went across my back, and I screamed for bloody murder. So I whipped myself, essentially. But I'll tell you, I never forgot that level of pain. And as soon as I read this, 
that is what came to mind. Marrying a foreign woman or a woman who does not know God would have felt the exact same way. How about thorns? Picture taking a thorn and pressing it into your eyeball. Picture it right now. What does that bring to mind? Complete repulsion. Marrying or dating somebody outside of the kingdom of God, Joshua says, is like pressing a thorn into your eyeball. If you don't like that, you won't like this. Number two, it's never God's plan to date or marry a non-Christian in the New Testament. Now, some of you, I know how you are, because I've been there. You think you're really smart. You say, you know what? Don't worry. I'm not going to marry a non-Christian, but I'm just going to date them. There's nothing wrong with dating a non-Christian. I'm just going to text them back and forth. We're in a texting relationship. Or we're in a Snapchat relationship. We're going to snap back and forth multiple times each day. But nothing is going to develop from that. The reason you say that, well, there's actually two reasons you say that, that it's not going to affect you. They are because you are young and because you are ignorant. Can I get anybody over 30 to amen that one? Yes. See? Young people, listen to the voice of your peers right now. You are young and you are ignorant. Anytime a man and a woman start spending exclusive, extended time together, they will start beginning to find themselves connected and bonded with one another. It is just the way it works. It's especially true when you're in your 20s. When all of a sudden your body is just pulsating with hormones. It's just, it's just what happens. Time together and all of a sudden you start to bond together. Now you say, well, we're just going to date. Folks, nobody starts a dating relationship planning to date that, to, planning to marry that person. Nobody does that. You start a dating relationship and later find yourself bonded and wanting to marry that person. So why start a dating relationship if there's no possibility of marriage? You just don't go there. Let's look at more at the New Testament. It says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. Paul says, I have one criteria. Make sure who you date and marry is a Christian. That's the only thing I'm putting out there for you. It continues, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God says dating and marrying an unbeliever is unequally yoking things together. Now, in their context, yoking had to do with oxen. You want to find oxen of equal horsepower and equal temperament, or they would not work together. Maybe in our context, since we don't use oxen, you can think of your pets. 
like a cat and a, and a dog. How well would it work to take your cat and your dog and tie them together at the collar and then try to take them for a walk? It doesn't work, does it? Because you have animals of completely different temperaments. It does not work together. And what Paul is saying is, you may be dating or you want to go date a non-Christian person that you think is the perfect match for you because you really get along in all these other surface areas. The reality is that you feel is a good match isn't a good match because the most important thing below the surface, your relationship with Jesus Christ does not connect. So therefore, as you try to build a life together, you'd be building a life together with two diametrically opposed sets of blueprints. In other words, it's okay at the very beginning, but you're shooting for one thing and they're shooting for another thing. So it goes further apart. Let me give you a couple more things. He asks a number of rhetorical questions here. Like what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? like a police officer trying to marry a a drug lord. They just don't get along, righteousness and lawlessness. About light and darkness. You can't have the two existing in the same space. Like Christ and Belial. It's like Christ and Satan. How well do Christ and Satan get along? Do they go out for coffee together? Maybe watch the same movie on the same couch? Absolutely not. They're diametrically opposed to one another. Or he says, the temple of God and idols. If you've ever seen a Muslim mosque and their call to prayer, how well would it work to combine a Muslim mosque and a Christian church and have the same worship service? Absolutely not. The Muslims would be calling for you to go send your son to die for God, while we'd be talking about God has sent his son to die for us. Like, it's opposites. It doesn't go work at all. And this is what he says. He says, we are people of God. God loves us. Jesus died for us. We're family. We need to be faithful to our family and only date Christian people that would be in our church family kind of thing. And to intentionally choose to marry or even to date an unbeliever, it's profaning God's covenant. It's literally cussing God out. It's what he says. Now, let me just develop this a little bit more. First of all, this is not a racial thing. This is a religious thing. Some people misunderstand. They say, well, the reason that you only want to date other Christians is because you have sort of a religious or, excuse me, a racial superiority. And they sort of analogize it to Arianism and Nazism. We're superior than you. That's, That's not it at all. In fact, if you think back on your scriptures, you know that when God's people came out of Egypt, you read between the lines down there, you find out that some of the Egyptians left with the Israelites. They joined with the Israelites, and that was okay. You know why? Because they left the gods of Egypt begin worshiping the one true God of the universe. It was like an Old Testament conversion experience. Or, oh, I'm just going, what's another one I was going, Ruth, that's it. Ruth, remember we studied her this summer? Ruth, the, the Moabites. Moabites are dreaded by the Israelites not to have any connection with them, but 
Ruth left the gods of Moab to begin worshiping the one true God of Israel. She was welcomed into the people of God. In fact, even put into the very bloodline of Jesus Christ. So this is not a racial thing. This is a religious thing. Next point. How serious is this issue? We think who we date, who we marry is our business. God says, I am your father. Who you date and who you marry is my business. We think that who we date and who we marry will only affect us. God says, we're family. (laughs) Who you date and who you marry will affect a lot more than just you. Think about how it affects your biological parents when you bring home somebody who is not part of the family of God. Think about how it affects your church family. Say you date and you choose to marry somebody who's not a Christian. And one of the things we're told to do as Christian families is to offer hospitality, which means we have people over our home. But how does it work when you go to have people over your home and your spouse doesn't want anything to do with Jesus Christ? How does that work for a witness? It doesn't. It's hard. How does it work when at night, when you put your kids to bed, you pray for them alone? Because your spouse doesn't believe in praying to God and Jesus Christ. How does it work when it comes time to teach them the Bible? And you're the only one teaching them the Bible. How does it work when you come to church and you have to sit by yourself because you're the spiritual pillar and the rock alone in your family? It's hard. It's hard. See, it affects more than just you. Now, I know there are some people who try to create excuses. Say, well, I'm different. You're not different. Stop it. You're not wiser. You're not better. Think about this. Solomon, the wisest man ever to walk the face of the earth, who had God appear to him twice, walked away from God at the end of his life because of his foreign wives. Samson, the strongest man ever to walk the face of the earth, also was destroyed by Delilah. Pursuing a woman outside of the family of God. So you're telling me you're smarter than the smartest man on the earth? You're stronger than the strongest man on the earth? Right. I don't think it's going to work that way. God says we must be very, very careful about who we date and who we marry. Give you a little bit of statistics that might help you. One of the things I ran across in my studies this week is... uh, Marriage statistics about interfaith marriage. The marriages that are least likely to succeed, just statistically, are interfaith. That's like a Hindu marrying a Muslim or a Christian marrying an atheist or an agnostic. Least likely to succeed. You know which kind of marriages are most likely to succeed? People who together are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, church-attending, Christians. Just statistically. Date and marry a believer. 
Let me put it to you this way. Missionary dating leads to a miserable marriage. Missionary dating will lead to a miserable marriage. So let me give you a couple um, little bits of help here if you're single. What are the right ways and the wrong ways to be single? First, let's give you five wrong ways. Number one is to sin. That is the side. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and date a non-believer just because I'm so tired of being lonely. Let's move in with somebody. I'm tired of being lonely. Let's have sex with somebody. I don't care if they're an atheist. I just am tired of being lonely. That's called sin. It's not trusting a God. It's rebelling against God. Now, we have a number of ladies that are in the church here who are single moms. And I want to mention this to you. Single moms. Any man that discourages your relationship with the God-man is the wrong man. Any man that discourages your relationship with the God-man is the wrong man. Stay away. Don't enter into sin. Number two, give up hope. What this means is people say, I am so tired of being single. I am getting bitter over being single. I'm not praying for a person anymore. I don't want to be introduced to people anymore. I am just bitter over this. and I've given up hope. And to that, I would say, don't give up hope. Trust God's timing. God knows the desires of your heart. And in the right time, in the right way, if it's his will, he will bring the right person. Number three, don't settle for less. This is the people who started out looking and they had that long list of who they're looking for, you know, and the ladies who start out this way, they're looking for Clark Kent, who's on fire for Jesus, you know, Superman, and that long list of all these great qualities. And after time goes on, well, they start crossing out those qualities, you know, it goes less and less. And eventually they're like, I'm looking for somebody of the opposite sex who's breathing. And that's about all you have left, you know, and I'm like, and here's my thing to you. Don't settle for less. Don't. Don't settle. Have a list. Make sure it's a reasonable list. Clark Kent is not available. Keep it a reasonable list. And Jesus and passion for Jesus has to be on the top of the list. But don't settle for less. In fact, I would challenge you to not just have one list, but have two lists. Say, what's the second list about? Well, the first list is the qualities of the person you're looking for that you want to marry. The second list is the qualities and the person you want to be when you are married. That list you can do something about. That is the list that you can pursue changing in your life to be the right person. Because you see, God often brings the right person when you focus on being the right person. Focus on being the right person and then trust in God's timing. Think of it this way. It's always better to be single and to be wishing you were married than to be married and wishing you were single. So don't settle. Number four, some people respond to singleness by beating themselves up. What's wrong with me? I'm damaged goods. Nobody loves me. Nobody wants me. There's something wrong with me. And uses like a club just to beat the tar out of yourself on your head. You know, don't beat yourself up with your singleness. Did you realize God in his providence and his goodness and his love for you may have you single right now 
for a reason. He may allow you to be suffering in your singleness for a reason. Because you know what? Suffering is what God uses to produce spiritual maturity. Isn't that true? You grow best in the hard times, not the good times. So maybe he has you single to mature you, to make you the right person for marriage. Or maybe the reason that you're single is because the person he's going to bring into your life is in the process of being matured. And God has them going through a hard time to mature them. Number five, fixate on marriage. This is a person who all they can think about and all they want and all they talk about is being married. They're on every dating website. They lie on their profiles. They airbrush their photos. They have to like, you know, look really good and better than reality because they have to get married. But here's the problem. Marriage is not the end goal in itself. Loving your mate is what you're shooting for. These are people that love marriage more than they will love their mate. It doesn't work that way. Last thing, and here's the right way. What do you do when you're single? Turn to Jesus, because he understands, doesn't he? Did you realize that Jesus was single? Yet the scriptures tell us that in his singleness, he lived a perfect life. Jesus didn't have any children. But did Jesus leave a legacy? Did Jesus have a healthy relationship with people of the opposite sex that did not involve sexuality? We'll have to answer the phone on that one. But yes, he did. He did. The other thing I want to mention is this. Jesus understands the struggle of being single because he was single. And the book of Hebrews tells us to turn to Jesus in our time of need that we may find grace and mercy when we need it. Turn to him when you're single and he will give you the grace you need. All right. That was what the scripture says on singleness. Let me go back to Malachi and look at the other thing here. He says, what are God's words to those who are married? And the second thing you do, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. There's that word again. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What was God seeking? Godly offspring. First thing, God is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You know, on your wedding day, you remember you did the wedding and then you had to go in the back and there was a marriage license, a marriage certificate that had to be signed by two witnesses. And unless those two witnesses signed your marriage license, it wasn't uh, official. But the scriptures tell us that it's not those witnesses who are just holding us to account, but it's God who is the greater witness. In fact, the marriage at a justice of the peace that is just in the eyes of the state and a marriage in the church, which is in the state plus the eyes of the Lord, is a different kind of marriage. 
Because marriage in a church, you are asking for God to be the greatest witness. You are asking for God to feel free to hold your feet to the flame if you're unfaithful. And that's exactly what God is doing here. He's holding these people's feet to the flame because they have been unfaithful to the wife of their youth. Now, why it's not completely found in the verses that we just read, if you keep reading, this is the picture we get of what's happening. You have middle-aged men of God. They've married. They've had children through their wives. And they're going, you know what? She doesn't look like a 20-year-old anymore. They're divorcing their wives and going after and marrying younger pagan chicks. That's literally what they are doing. And this is, God says, this is a complete abomination. This drives me nuts. And then what he does is he talks about different aspects of the marriage covenant and why this tearing apart of a husband and wife that are married in the eyes of God is so hideous. How does marriage bond a couple? We learn this, a husband and wife make a covenant, not a contract. It's a promise of exclusivity in the very eyes of God. So a contract, if you guys enter into these contracts, you know, it's a two-way street. One person can break it, and then the other person is no longer obligated to keep it. But a covenant is different than a contract. A covenant is a one-way promise, no matter what happens on the other end. That's why in a marriage we say it's for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. It's a promise. It's a covenant made in God's eyes, with God as the greatest witness, who will also hold you, your feet to the flame. Number two, a husband and wife become one sexually. If you're looking for a verse for that, go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Write that in your notes. What we find is a, uh, a man leaves his father and mother and they become, becomes one with his wife and sexually creates a bonding and uniting between a husband and wife. Literally, the scriptures say you become one flesh, like one person after this. Number three, a husband and wife become companions, it says. That literally means best friends. In marriage... It's not just a sexual relationship. But what God's design is that you should have your best friend in your spouse. That's literally what he wants to happen here. Companionship. By the way, you're looking for uh, some extra verses to support that. Song of Solomon, verse five, chapter 5, verse 16, where uh, the lady says, He is my beloved, but he is also my friend. Lovers and friends together. And here's where it gets interesting. And the Holy Spirit knits them together. He says there is a portion of the Spirit in their union. Most people don't realize this, that marriage before God, the Holy Spirit, which is in the husband and in the wife, the Spirit draws them together and the Spirit binds them together. That's why a Christian marriage should be the most deepest, intimate, closest kind of marital relationship you can ever experience. 
Because it's not just a promise of exclusivity. It's not just sexual oneness. It's not just companionship. It is God's Holy Spirit binding and drawing. That's why you can pray together as a couple. And there's a special intimacy in that. That is why you can forgive as a couple because you have been forgiven by Jesus. And this is why he says divorce. These middle-aged men (laughs) divorcing their wives who are looking a little bit uh, more over the hill after having kids. That's why he says it's hideous. It's breaking of a promise. It's breaking of sexual union. It's destroying the best friend they will have. And it's tearing apart what God has literally joined together. Now, let me take a few minutes. I can't, I don't, I don't want to dive into this deeply, but I do want to talk about this briefly, the issue of divorce, divorce in the Christian church. What does the Bible say? When does the Bible say divorce is allowable? Number one, the Bible says divorce is allowable in death because the marriage covenant has been broken. Number two, it says divorce is allowable in adultery that adultery is like a torpedo into the hull of marriage. It destroys, you know, that friendship. It destroys that sexual oneness. By the way, let me mention this. If someone commits adultery, that doesn't mean you have to get divorced. But persistent adultery is a valid reason for divorce. Number three is abandonment. And that's where Paul says, if the unbeliever leaves, let them leave. In other words, if somebody chooses to leave you as a non-Christian and they're a non-Christian, well, you have to let them go. But here's the hard question. What about abandonment when it's actually two believers? You both are married in the eyes of the church. You both are following the Lord and one person chooses to leave and not to restore, not to work on the marriage. What happens then? Well, as far as I can see, the person who's chosen to leave, refuses to work on and restore it, they're acting like an unbeliever. (laughs) They're giving evidence of being an unbeliever by refusing to work on and restore the relationship. One other thing. What about persistent physical abuse? Now, by the way, the Bible does not address this issue directly about persistent physical abuse. Is that a valid reason for divorce? And I think maybe that's because it's self-evident and obvious. But I do want to say this, that in 20 plus years of being a pastor, I think I've seen this on occasions being used wrongly. And I'll give you an example of it. Uh, I've been a couple having a difficulty, and you counsel them, and she says, well, I want a divorce. I said, well, why? Well, you know, he is just abusive towards me. Well, has he hit you? No. Well, what's happened? He gets angry. Okay, not right, but he's angry. He's going to hit me someday. Well, he hasn't hit you yet. And I've seen this become used as a valid reason that somebody says for divorce. Now, I know these things are incredibly complex, so please don't think this is a one-size-fits-all answer. But be careful of using that as a valid reason. A couple other things. Um, What should I know about divorce? Let me run through these quickly. If you have grounds for divorce, that doesn't mean I must get a divorce. 
There's been many couples who've worked, who've had even adultery in their relationship, but they've worked through it to the other side and things are better. Number two, don't make the decision to divorce in isolation. I've seen this way too many times where somebody says, well, I need to get a divorce. No counsel, no input, no talking to a life group leader, no talking to an elder. They just make it on their own and think they have all the information and all the wisdom. And it's not the right way to do that. Number three, don't make the decision to divorce in haste. You you don't have a bad day in in a fight and then decide to divorce. It took you six months to get married or a year to get married. It should take you six months or a year to make that decision to divorce. Number four, do not make the decision to divorce in lust. That means it's like, if you find somebody else at work that you think is more attractive and you're having a relationship going on over there and you have a valid reason to divorce over here, you don't make the decision to, to leave one person so you can go to another person. That's leaving in lust. It's wrong. You can't think clearly. Number five, never divorce because you want to. Only divorce because you have to. You have waited. You've tried. You've pleaded. You've held on, but they keep pushing the papers in your face. Sign the paperwork. I'm going to get done one way or the other, whether you sign it or not. You don't want to. But now you sort of have to. You're forced. And lastly, before you divorce, think about your children. Think about them. Malachi says, what was God seeking out of this marriage Godly offspring. Think about your kids before you let your spouse go. Because, number one, it's going to be one weekend at one parent, another weekend at the other parent, bouncing back and forth. Half the time here, half the time there. Holidays, difficulties. And you end up not giving an example of somebody who had a difficult time in their marriage and pressed through. But somebody had a difficult time in their marriage and threw in the towel. And when they face a difficult time in their marriage, what are they going to want to do? The same thing they saw their parents do. Think about your children. Now let me just uh, give you the last bit here. How can I start and finish marriage well? The fill in the blanks are these. He says very clearly, guard your spirit. Don't be unfaithful to God in your dating. (laughs) Really. Don't be unfaithful that you're dating. Number two, guard your spirit. Don't be unfaithful to God and, or God and your spouse in your marriage. And number three is this. Remember your legacy. When you are find yourself struggling to make right choices in dating, struggling to make right choices in marriage, guard your heart. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that you'd help us to guard our heart, especially if we're singles. I pray that we would the singles would only date and only allow into their lives those who know you and love you so they wouldn't find their heart being connected with somebody who doesn't love you passionately and who's not part of your kingdom. I pray for those of us who are married. I pray that we would be faithful to our wives and faithful to our husbands and we would guard our hearts not letting any relationships begin to develop in the work environment or outside of the home environment, but that we would bounce our eyes away from anyone else that we would find attractive other than our spouse. And that we would not only start marriage well, but we would...
finished marriage well, faithful all the way to the end. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.